0: bishop this story is a travelers account of their visit to korea in the late 1800s long before gangnam style and during a time when the country was largely unknown to the wider world my name is teddy and i aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I love hearing from listeners of the show. Firstly, I would like to say thank you to two special listeners of the show. Jacqueline Bromeland for becoming a patron on Patreon and supporting the podcast with a monthly contribution. And Johanna Obanaja, thank you for supporting the podcast with a $10 monthly contribution. The podcast is free, but it is thanks to listeners like you that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, whether it is $1 or $5, Your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, please visit boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I do understand that not everybody can afford to support the podcast with a financial contribution. However, there is a small but hugely helpful favor that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend, and if possible, kindly leave a review in your podcast app. There are a lot of people out there who are struggling with sleep, and my goal is to help as many people as possible get the sleep that they need. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boyytosleep.com. I am also on Twitter and Instagram, at sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Korea and her Neighbors A narrative of travel with an account of the recent vicissitudes and present position of the country by Isabella Bird Bishop Author of Unbeaten Tracks in Japan, and also by Sir Walter C. Hillier, late British Consul General for Korea. Preface I have been honoured by Mrs. Bishop with an invitation to preface her book on Korea with a few introductory remarks. Mrs. Bishop is too well known as a traveller and a writer to require any introduction to the reading public, but I am glad to be afforded an opportunity of endorsing the conclusions she has arrived at after a long and intimate study of a people whose isolation during many centuries renders a description of their character, institutions and peculiarities, especially interesting at the present stage of their history. Those who, like myself, have known Korea from its first opening to foreign intercourse will thoroughly appreciate the closeness of Mrs. Bishop's observation the accuracy of her facts, and the correctness of her inferences. The facilities enjoyed by her have been exceptional. She has been honoured by the confidence and friendship of the king and the late queen in a degree that has never before been accorded to any foreign traveller and has had access to valuable sources of information placed at her disposal by the foreign community of Seoul, official, missionary and mercantile. While her presence in the country during the subsequent to the war between China and Japan, of which Korea was in the first instance, the stage has furnished her with the opportunity of recording with accuracy and impartiality Many details of an episode in Far Eastern history which have hitherto been clouded by misstatement and exaggeration. The hardships and difficulties encountered by Mrs. Bishop during her journeys into the interior of Korea have been lightly touched upon by herself. But those who know how great they were admire the courage, patience and endurance that enabled her to overcome them. It must be evident to all who know anything of Korea that a condition of tutelage in some form or another is now absolutely necessary to her existence as a nation. The nominal independence won for her by the force of Japanese arms is a privilege she is not fitted to enjoy while she continues to labor under the burden of an administration that is hopelessly and superlatively corrupt. The role of mentor and guide exercised by China with that lofty indifference to local interests that characterizes her treatment of all tributaries was undertaken by Japan after the expulsion of the Chinese armies from Korea. The efforts of the Japanese to reform some of the most glaring abuses, though somewhat roughly applied, were undoubtedly earnest and genuine. But as Mrs. Bishop has shown, Experience was wanting, and one of the Japanese agents did incalculable harm to the country's cause by falling a victim to the spirit of intrigue, which seems almost inseparable from the diplomacy of Orientals. Force of circumstances compelled Russia to take up the task begun by Japan, the king having appealed in his desperation to the Russian representative for rescue from a terrorism which might well have cowed a stronger and a braver man. The most partial of critics will admit that the powerful influence of which the presence of the king in the house of their representative might have enabled the Russian government to exert has been exercised through their minister with almost disappointing moderation. Nevertheless, through the instrumentality of Malevi Brown, LLD, head of the Korean customs and financial advisor to the government, as Englishman whose great ability as an organizer and administrator is recognised by all residents in the farther east. The finances of the country have been placed in a condition of equilibrium that has never before existed, while numerous other reforms have been carried out by Mr Brown and others with cordial support and cooperation of the Russian minister irrespective of the nationality of the agent employed. Much, however, still remains to be done, and the only hope of advance in the direction of progress initiated, it is only fair to remember by Japan, and continued under Russian auspices, is to maintain an iron grip with the Russian agents so far, have been more careful than their Japanese predecessors to conceal beneath a velvet glove. The condition of Korean settlers in Russian territory, described by Mrs. Bishop, shows how capable these people are of improving their condition under wise and paternal rule and setting all political considerations aside. There can be no doubt that the prosperity of the people and their general comfort and happiness would be immensely advanced under an extension of this patronage by one or other civilized power. Without some form of patronage or control, call it by what name we will, a lapse into the old groove of oppression, extortion and its concomitant miseries is inevitable. Mrs. Bishop's remarks on missionary work in China and Korea, based as they are on personal and sympathetic observation, will be found of great value to those who are anxious to arrive at a correct appreciation of Christian enterprise in these remote regions Descriptions of missionaries and their doings are too often marred by exaggerations of success on the one hand, which are perhaps the natural outcome of enthusiasm and harsh and frequently unjust criticisms on the other, commonly indulged in by those who base their conclusions upon observation of the most superficial kind. Speaking from my own experience, I have no hesitation in saying that closer inquiry would dispel many of the illusions about the futility of missionary work that are unfortunately too common, and that missionaries would, as a rule, welcome sympathetic inquiry into their methods of work, which most of them will frankly admit to be capable of improvement. But, while courting friendly criticism, they may reasonably object to being judged by those who have never taken the trouble to study their system or to interest themselves in the objects they have in view. In Mrs. Bishop, they have an advocate whose testimony may be commended to the attention of all, who are disposed to regard missionary labour as, at the best, useless or unnecessary. In Korea, at all events, to go no farther. It is to missionaries that we are assuredly indebted for almost all we know about the country. It is they who have awakened in the pool the desire for material progress and enlightenment that has now happily taken root, and is to them that they may confidently look for assistance in the farther development. The unacknowledged, but nonetheless complete, religious toleration that now exists throughout the country affords them facilities, which are being energetically used with great promise of future success. I am tempted to call attention to another point in connection with this much abused class of workers that is, I think often lost sight of, namely their utility as explorers and pioneers of commerce. They are always ready, at least such has been my invariable experience to place the stores of their local knowledge at the disposal of anyone, whether merchant, sportsman or traveller, who applies to them for information, and to lend him cheerful assistance in the pursuit of his objects. I venture to think that much valuable information as to channels for the development of trade could be obtained by chambers of commerce if they were to address specific inquiries to missionaries in remote regions. Manufacturers are more indebted to missionaries than perhaps they realize for the introduction of their goods and wares, and the creation of a demand for them, in places to which such would never otherwise have found their way. It is fortunate that Mrs. Bishop's visit to Korea was so opportunely timed. At the present rate of progress, much that came under her observation will, before long, be improved out of existence, and though no one can regret the disappearance of many institutions and customs that have nothing but their antiquity to recommend them, She has done valuable service in placing on record so graphic a description of experiences that future travellers will probably look for in vain. My four visits to Korea between January 1894 and March 1897 formed part of a plan of study of the leading characteristics of the Mongolian races. My first journey produced the impression that Korea is the most uninteresting country I ever travelled in. But during and since the war, its political perturbations, rapid changes and possible destinies have given me an intense interest in it. While Korean character and industry as I saw both under Russian rule in Siberia, have enlightened me as to the better possibilities which may await the nation in the future. Korea takes a similarly strong grip on all who reside in it sufficiently long to overcome the feeling of distaste to which at first it undoubtedly inspires. It is a difficult country to write upon, from the lack of books of reference by means of which one may investigate what one hopes are facts. The two best books on the country, having become obsolete within the last few years in so far as its political condition and social order are concerned. The traveller must laboriously disinter each fact for himself, usually through the medium of an interpreter, and as five or six versions of each are given by apparently equally reliable authorities, frequently the teachers of the foreigners, the only course is to hazard a bold guess. ...as to which of them has the best chance of being accurate. Accuracy has been my first aim... ...and my many foreign friends in Korea... ...know how industriously I have laboured to attain it. It is by these who know the extreme difficulty of the task... ...that I shall be the most leniently criticised wherever. In spite of carefulness... I have fallen into mistakes. Circumstances prevented me from putting my travelling experiences, as on former occasions, into letters. I took careful notes which were corrected from time to time by the more prolonged observations of residents, and as I became better acquainted with the country, But with regard to my journey up the south branch of the Han, as I am the first traveller who has reported on the region, I have to rely on my observation and inquiries alone. And there is the same lack of recorded notes on most of the country of the Upper Taedong. My notes furnish the travel chapters, as well as those on Seoul, Manchuria and Pramorsk, and the sketches in contemporary Korean history are based partly on official documents, and are partly derived from sources not usually accessible. I owe very much to the kindly interest which my friends in Korea took in my work, and to the encouragement which they gave me when I was disheartened by the difficulties of the subject and my own lack of skill. I gratefully acknowledge the invaluable help given me by Sir Walter C. Hillier, Consul General in Korea, and Mr. J. M. Levy Brown, Chief Commissioner of Korean Customs, Also the aid generously bestowed by Mr. Weber, the Russian minister, and the Reverend G. Heber-Jones, the Reverend James Gale, and other missionaries. I am also greatly indebted to a learned and careful volume on Korean government by Mr. W. H. Wilkinson. HBM's acting vice consul at Champulo, as well as to the Korean Repository and the Seoul Independent for information which has enabled me to correct some of my notes on Korean customs. Various repetitions occur for the reason that it appears to me impossible to give sufficient emphasis to certain facts without them and several descriptions are loaded with details, the result of an attempt to fix on paper customs and ceremonies, destined surely to disappear. The illustrations, with the exceptions of three, are reproductions of my own photographs, the sketch map insofar as my first journey is concerned. Is reduced from one kindly drawn for me by Mr. Weber. The transliteration of Chinese proper names was kindly undertaken by a well known Chinese scholar, but unfortunately the actual Chinese characters were not in all cases forthcoming. In justice to the kind friends who have so generously aided me, I am anxious to claim and accept the fullest measure of personal responsibility for the opinions expressed, which, whether right or wrong, are wholly my own. I am painfully conscious of the demurtis of this work, but believing that on the whole it reflects fairly faithfully the regions of which it treats I venture to present it to the public and to ask for it the same kindly and lenient criticism with which my records of travel in the East and elsewhere have hitherto been received and that it may be accepted as an honest attempt to make a contribution to the sum of the knowledge of Korea and its people and to describe things as I saw them, not only in the interior, but in the troubled political atmosphere of the capital. In the winter of 1894, when I was about to sail for Korea, many interested friends hazarded guesses at its position, the equator, the Mediterranean, and the Black Sea being among them a hazy notion that it is Greek archipelago cropping up frequently. It was curious that not one of these educated and in some cases intelligent people came within 2,000 miles of its actual latitude and longitude. In truth, there is something about this peninsula which has repelled investigation and until lately... When the establishment of a monthly periodical, carefully edited, the Korean Repository, has stimulated research, the one authority of which all writers, with and without acknowledgement, have availed themselves, is the introduction to Per Dalet's History de Korea, a valuable treatise many parts of which, however, are now obsolete. If in this volume I present facts so elementary as to provoke the scornful comment, every schoolboy knows that. I venture to remind my critics that the larger number of possible readers who were educated when Korea was little more than a geographical expression and had not the advantages of the modern schoolboy whose up-to-date geographical textbooks have been written since the treaties of 1883 opened the hermit nation to the world and i will ask the minority to be patient with what may be to them twice told tales for the sake of the majority especially in this introduction which is intended to give something of lucidity to the chapters which follow. The first notice of Korea is by Cordabe, an Arab geographer of the ninth century AD, in his Book of Roads and Provinces, quoted by Baron Richefen in his work on China, page 575. Legends of the aboriginal inhabitants of the peninsula are too mythical to be noticed here, but it is certain that it was inhabited when Kitze or Kitja, who will be referred to later, introduced the elements of Chinese civilization in the 12th century BC. Naturally, that conquest and subsequent immigrations from Manchuria... ...have left some traces on the Koreans... ...but they are strikingly dissimilar from both their nearest neighbours... ...the Chinese and the Japanese. The difficulty of identifying people which besets and worries the stranger in Japan and China... ...does not exist in Korea. It is true that the obliquity of the Mongolian eye is always present as well as a trace of bronze in the skin, but the complexion varies from a swarthy olive to a very light brunette. The geography of Korea is simple. It is a definite peninsula to the northeast of China, measuring roughly 600 miles from north to south, and 135 from east to west. The coast line is about 1,740 miles, bounded on the north and west by the Tumen and Amnok or Yalu rivers, which divide it from the Russian and Chinese empires, and by the Yellow Sea. Its eastern and southern limit is the Sea of Japan, a silver streak which has not been its salvation. Its northern frontier is only conterminous with that of Russia for 11 miles. Both boundary rivers rise in Paik Toussaint, the white-headed mountain, from which runs southwards a great mountain range, throwing off numerous lateral spurs. Itself a rugged spine which divides the kingdom into two parts the eastern division being a comparatively narrow strip between the range and the sea of Japan, difficult of access but extremely fertile, while the western section is composed of rugged hills and innumerable rich valleys and slopes, well-watered and admirably suited for agriculture. Craters of volcanoes long since passed into repose. Lava beds and other signs of volcanic action are constantly met with. The lakes are few and very small, and not many of the streams are navigable for more than a few miles from the sea. The exceptions being the noble Amnok, the Taidong, the Nakdong and Mokpo, and the Han, which last rising in Kangwondo, 30 miles from the Sea of Japan, after cutting the country nearly in half, falls into the sea at Shemulpo on the west coast, and in spite of many and dangerous rapids, is a valuable highway for commerce for over 170 miles. Owing to the configuration of the peninsula, there are few good harbors, but those which exist are open all the winter. The finest are Fusan and Wonsan, on Broughton Bay, Chamulpo, which, as the port of Seoul, takes the first place, can hardly be called a harbour at all. The outer harbour where large vessels and ships of war lie, being nothing better than a roadstead, and the inner harbour close to the town, in the fierce tideway of the estuary of the Han, is only available for five or six vessels of small tonnage at a time. The east coast is steep and rocky. The water is deep, and the tide rises and falls from 1 to 2 feet only. On the southwest and west coasts, the tide rises and falls from 26 to 38 feet. Off the latter coast, there is a remarkable archipelago Some of the islands are bold masses of arid rock, the resort of sea fowl, others are arable and inhabited, while the actual coast fringes off into innumerable islets, some of which are immersed by the spring tides. In the channels scoured among these by the tremendous rush of the tide, navigation is oft times dangerous. Great mud banks, especially near the mouths of the rivers, render parts of the coast line dubious. Korea is decidedly a mountainous country and has few plains deserving the same name. In the north, there are mountain groups with definite centers, the most remarkable being opaque to sun which attains an altitude of over 8,000 feet, and is regarded as sacred. Farther south, these settle into a definite range, following the coastline at a moderate distance, and throwing out so many ranges and spurs to the west. The Great Axial Range, which includes the Diamond Mountain, A region containing exquisite mountain and sylvan scenery falls away as it descends towards the southern coast, disintegrating in places into small and often infertile plains. The geological formation is fairly simple. Mesozoic rocks occur in Huanghai Do but granite and metamorphic rocks largely predominate. Northeast of Seoul are great fields of lava, and lava and volcanic rocks are of common occurrence in the north. The climate is undoubtedly one of the finest and healthiest in the world. Foreigners are not afflicted by any climatic maladies and European children can safely be brought up in every part of the peninsula. And July, August, and sometimes the first half of September are hot and rainy, but the heat is so tempered by sea breezes that exercise is always possible. For nine months of the year, the skies are generally bright. And a Korean winter is absolutely superb, with its still atmosphere, its bright blue unclouded sky, its extreme dryness without asperity, and its crisp frosty nights. From the middle of September till the end of June, there are neither extremes of heat nor cold to guard against. The summer mean temperature at Seoul is about 75 degrees Fahrenheit, that of the winter about 33 degrees. The average rainfall, 36.03 inches in the year, and the average of the rainy season, 21.86 inches. July is the wettest month, and December the driest. The result of the abundant rainfall distributed fairly through the necessitous months of the year, is that irrigation is necessary only for the rice crop. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about Korea in the late 1800s and early 1900s. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy You To Slate podcast. Until next time, good night.